It is so good to be together, and I'm so pleased to see new faces, and some of you are returning back for the first time, and a lot of you tuning in still online. Welcome to River West. Are you glad to be here this morning to open the scriptures? And I... I, I have a couple things I want to say as you pull out your Bibles. The first is that kind of on behalf of Mike and Kathleen, we really need your help. What's happening in the church right now is we're beginning to reopen our children's ministry, which is an awesome thing. And we're b- rebuilding that team of servants down there. So if you have been vaccinated and if you are background checked, especially even if you haven't been vaccinated, some of you are ready to serve and you're not vaccinated, but especially if you're feeling more comfortable, um, we need some help, especially especially next Sunday, Easter Sunday, we're expecting lots of families with young kids and we would love to be able to provide ministry to those children. So please email Kathleen. That's Kathleen with a K, Kathleen at riverwest.org and say, I'm ready to serve. We only allow background checked folks to serve in our children's ministry. Um, So this right now is a call to those of you who have already served in some capacity, but we'll also begin to recruit new members to that team and we'd love to have your help with that. The other thing I just want to remind you of is we're entering into Holy Week. Next Sunday is um, an amazing Sunday in the life of the church, Easter Sunday, and actually the whole weekend is very important, and we've been praying and getting ready for that weekend. Starting Good Friday, we have two services, you'll remember, a 6.30, which is live-streamed, for those of you who will tune in on live stream, and then an 8.30 right here in the sanctuary. It's going to be a wonderful, worshipful, very deep, profound service. We invite you to come to that. Invite a friend. Invite a neighbor. And then join us Sunday morning. Four services on Sunday, 3 in the morning, an 8.15, a 10 a.m., which is live streamed, a 9.45, and then the 4 p.m. family service. And for all of you early morning coffee drinkers, if you would come to that 8.15, it'd be great because we anticipate guests and visitors at that 10, so we'll want to leave room there for them. So God bless you. Looking forward to being together next Sunday. But right now, what I'm really excited to do is open the scriptures together, and Luke is where we go. Luke chapter 20. Will you pull out your Bible? And while you're turning there, I I have to put up a picture that popped up In my news stream this week, I know many of you saw this picture. I could not believe it. Do you know this? Do you recognize this picture? All right, that is the cargo ship, the Ever Given. That's the ship that has blocked the Suez Canal, okay? If you know this story, this is like a big deal. Since Tuesday, the Suez Canal has been blocked by this cargo ship. And just to give you a sense of the size, notice the anchor and then notice the bulldozer. When your anchor is as large as a bulldozer, okay? That tells you how big this ship is as long as the, as the Empire State Building is tall. If you set the Empire State Building down, it's the same length. It got caught in a wind gust. It turned sideways. It hit the beach and it blocked the Suez Canal. And I'll show you an aerial picture of this. So there it is. That's the only way from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean. It's one of the major trade routes globally. It has shut down commerce in in really, really devastating ways. As of this morning, there are 360. 69 ships waiting to get through the Suez Canal. Cargo ships, some of them are filled with live cattle. This is actually kind of a 
kind of a big deal. Um, I think there's a picture of all the ships. They've got like a picture of all the ships out in the bay just waiting and there's more of them. This morning, the president of, of Egypt said, we're gonna have to resort to drastic measures. I'm thinking they're gonna blow it up, you know, but no, they're not gonna blow it up. They're, what they're gonna do is they're gonna unload it and then hopefully it will float and they can get it out of there. Now you're thinking, pastor, why are you talking about this? Here's what I'm talking about this. This is actually the perfect metaphor for what's happening in Luke chapter 20. I want to go to the fourth picture and just show it to you. Okay, imagine with me that that cargo ship represents distorted religion. Religion that actually gets so distorted or so deceptive that instead of opening a channel between people and God, it actually plugs it up. And imagine, and this might sound a little sacrilegious, but imagine that little, that little tractor is Jesus in, in Luke 20, seeing if in a last-ditch effort he can, he can clear this up. Because if we're studying Luke 20 and what's happening in Luke 20 is religious, the religious elite who represent the, the distorted religious system in Jerusalem, they've been challenging Jesus, challenging Jesus, challenging Jesus, coming at him wave after wave after wave. And the reader's thinking, at what point will finally Jesus give up and just blow the whole thing up? <laughs> because religion, shockingly, is actually doing precisely the opposite of what's supposed to do in Jerusalem. It's preventing people from access to God. The title of my sermon is The Danger of Distorted Religion. Or you, could, or you could call it The Danger of Deceptive Religion. Sometimes deception is harmless. You know, April Fool's pranks. I remember one year I opened my Google Maps on April Fool's and it was Mrs. Pac-Man. You could actually play Pac-Man on Google Maps. Google has one every year. Sometimes, though, deception is incredibly dangerous. And the most dangerous form of deception is the kind that's wrapped in religion. So we look at me, Luke 20. Now we're going to read three scenes and your job is to figure out how these three scenes hold together, but I promise you they do. We left off at Luke 20, verse 41. Here's what happened. But he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? Now you remember, Jesus has been on the defensive and he's outmaneuvered round after round after round of riddles and tricks and traps. And finally, Jesus says, enough is enough. The reader's thinking, just walk away. But no, Jesus is now going to go on the offensive. And he's got his own question to ask. So he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and they love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. 
And Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. The word of the Lord. In his final fray, in his final conflict, in his last collision with the religious elite and with distorted religion, Jesus does three things. Three things. Number one, he reveals. Number two, he warns. And number three, he laments. Okay? And you can see that in each of the three scenes we read. He, first, he reveals. He reveals the one truth that separates true religion from all of the distortions. The one biblical scriptural truth that ultimately matters. But then he warns. He warns about the temptation to use religion for personal gain. And then finally, he laments. He laments a corrupt religious system that would turn giving, which is supposed to be private, into a public spectacle that draws attention to people as they give. And you say, wow, this sounds really intense. And it is intense, but you know what? There's also people in this room who have been harmed by distorted religion. And you know what they're thinking? Thank you, pastor, for speaking to this. Thank you, Jesus, for caring about this. Why would Jesus care about confronting distorted religion? Because distorted religion ruins people's lives. And Jesus cares. So he does these things. And so ultimately what we're going to see this morning is we're going to get a revelation of the heart of God for people. I love this. And we're going to get a really helpful reminder of the kind of church Christ is calling us to be together. So we'll walk through these three things. He reveals, he warns, he laments. First, he reveals, look very closely at your Bible at verses 41 to 44. And let me just point out a couple things. The first thing I want to know is that the question that Jesus asks, how can the Christ be David's son when David calls him Lord? This is not a trick. It's not a riddle, okay? Jesus is actually, he's, he's doing this to reveal. He's trying to reveal truth. So unlike his opponents who kept coming, remember we learned over the last few weeks, they were coming with false motives, with tricks, with riddles, with philosophical conundrums. They were coming to divert attention away from the real thing. Jesus is doing precisely the opposite. Jesus says, let me ask a question that takes you to the razor's edge. The one biblical truth that separates false religions from the real thing. It's about the identity of Jesus. It's always about the identity of Jesus, right? Always. It always boils down to how clearly do you understand the identity of Christ? And so look at verse 42. Jesus quotes from a psalm. Psalm 110. I won't take you there now, but I I really encourage you to go back and read it. Interesting. Psalm 110 you may not know this, is actually the most quoted 
Old Testament passage in the New Testament. I, was, I would have thought Psalm 23, Isaiah 53, I mean, something in Leviticus 16, I don't know, but it's actually Psalm 110. And the reason for that is because Psalm 110 is entirely about the identity of the Christ, the true identity of the Messiah. And so if you look at it there in verse 42, here's what happens. In the very first verse of Psalm 110, it, it begins with a conversation between two members of the Godhead, Yahweh, okay, which is uppercase Lord in your Bible, it's uppercase. The Lord said to my Lord, that's Yahweh speaking to lowercase, it's L, and then lowercase R-D, that's Adonai. This is the Messiah, this is the Christ. So you have the Father speaking to the Son, and what are they talking about? They're having a conversation about the plan of God to bring all things under subjection to the Christ. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so there's a paradox here because it poses a problem for the religious elite because Jesus basically says, we all know that the Christ is David's son. So he comes from the line of David, the lineage of David. And every Jew would have agreed with that. But Psalm 110 also says, not only is the Christ the son of David, the Christ is Lord. He's God. So he comes from the line of David. He's the son of David, but he's also the Lord. And so it's not necessarily a riddle, but it does create a conundrum because Jesus says, if that's the case, how, how could David call his son his Lord? And the reason that's a conundrum is that in, the, in Middle Eastern culture, no father would ever refer to their son as Lord. This was like an honor-shame culture. That would be to completely invert honor and shame. No, no father would ever do that. The only way to solve the paradox is if that son is also divine, if that son is the son of the living God. And so Jesus throws out his own question. And who's the question directed to? Now think about this. It's directed to the leadership of a distorted religious system that's clogged up everything. It's actually preventing people from access to the true and living God. And Jesus says, I've got to take you to the core issue here. Luke leaves it hanging. Look at that. Look at verse 44. He just leaves it hanging. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? He just kind of takes you to the edge of the cliff and then the reader's left there to ponder and think, well, no one answers the question. No one resolves the tension. So the reader is left with it. And here's, what, here's why. The reader is thinking, these scribes, they claim that they're the experts in the Old Testament law and they cannot even figure out the true identity of the Messiah. They knew David. They loved David. They knew David's scriptures. They knew that David saw the Messiah as Lord. They knew that David submitted to Messiah as Lord and they are refusing to do it. So how can they be our spiritual guides any longer? They should have known that Messiah would claim divinity. They should have been waiting for Psalm 110 to be fulfilled. And here they are asleep at the wheel. 
And now the true Christ has shown up. But not only that, and this is, friends, where it applies to you and I, the reader is thinking, if David submitted to Christ as Lord, why haven't I submitted to Christ as Lord? If David got his true identity, why am I lagging behind? Now, many of us have, of course, many of us have seen the true identity of Jesus. Jesus, you are Savior, Son of David, yes, but also Son of the living God. And as Son of the living God, that means my life is no longer mine to control and rule. I'm no longer at the wheel. Christ, you are at the wheel. But I have to ask you this morning, friends, brothers and sisters, those of you tuning in online, have you turned over control of your life to Christ? Is he calling the shots? Is he dictating which way you go? Does he have say over your heart and your priorities and your motives and where you're headed in your life? He's Lord. He's Lord. And Jesus says, that's the first thing I have to reveal is the truth about my real identity. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He reveals, but then look at this. He warns. He warns the new leadership of his new movement about the temptation to use religion to gratify your own desires. Look at this. Look at verse 45. This is so fascinating. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes. Now, Look, the moment Jesus stops talking to you and starts talking about you, okay, that's, that's not the best moment probably. He's like, I'm done talking to the scribes now. I'm talking about the scribes. That's not a good moment for the scribes. Jesus says this, and actually from this point on, he never addresses the religious leadership in Israel from this point on. He only talks to his disciples. And Herod, amazing. Jesus says now, okay, it's over. And now I'm gonna to talk to the new leadership. I'm gonna to talk to the new, anyone who's still with me, disciples and followers, people whose hearts are open now. This is who I'm addressing. And what's his message? Watch out, beware. The word is really strong. Keep your guard up. Keep your guard up. They look so great on the outside. Those scribes and Pharisees, they dazzle. Oh, they look impressive. But don't be duped. Underneath the surface is deception. They're flaming out. They're burning up. It's on Thursday night in the Pacific Northwest, what happened on Thursday night in the Pacific Northwest, people went outside to a dazzling light show in the sky. Raise your hand if you saw. Anyone see this? Anyone see this in the news? Okay, a few of you. The, all of the incredible streaking lights to the sky and people were like, this is so beautiful. This is amazing. Do you know what that was? That was the SpaceX rocket flaming. It, had, it was burning up. It was going down in flames. It hit the Earth's atmosphere and it just exploded into flames. It's the perfect illustration for the religious leadership in Jerusalem. Oh, they looked great. The appearance was dazzling. But Jesus says, beware. Look what he draws their attention to, two things. He says, I want you to notice their true affections and I want you to notice their true audience. 
He says, beware of them. Look, they love to walk around in long robes and they love greetings in the marketplaces. They love it when people greet them in the market with respect. Oh, rabbi, oh, scribe, they love that. All the respect, all the the accolations, they love all of that. They love the best seats in the synagogues, courtside at the Lakers games. All right, I didn't say Blazers because I'm not sure if they're good anymore, but they love courtside seats. They love getting invited to the biggest parties. They want the front row seat at the synagogue. They love that kind of stuff. A couple years ago, all the pastors were sitting in my office. We were getting ready for a meeting and Pastor Christopher walked in and he had kind of a, he had kind of a glimmer in his eye and he was snickering a little bit and he had a video on his phone. Christopher always shows us great and humorous videos. This one was funny and was also disturbing. Christopher found a video of a pastor somewhere down in the Bible Belt who um, he got dressed up in a in a king's outfit with a, he put a crown on his head and a scepter and he sat down on a throne and he was serious. And then he had the deacons of the church come and pick up the throne and they marched all around the church. They were like, our king, our king. And I was thinking lightning is gonna strike any moment. Okay, we were sort of laughing and sort of not laughing, right? When, when religion becomes a source of temptation, to carry out your true desires. It's a warning. It's shocking. But look at this phrase, they devour widows' houses. This is a somber moment. In the Greek, the word devour, it means to eat all the way down to the bottom. It means to eat up every last crumble. Every penny. In the, ancient, in the ancient world, often when a widow, with her estate, she would entrust her estate to the leadership of the religious movement to help, help her with it. And what was happening is that the, the religious leaders were devouring. They were living off of the backs of widows. The very people that the New Testament tells the church to care for. Have you ever done a study of every time the word widow shows up in the New Testament? I challenge you to do it someday. You will be shocked how often the New Testament connects true religion with care for the widows and orphans, the poor, people in need. And the religious leaders in Jerusalem were devouring them. And then... And most shockingly, look at the very next phrase. So they're devouring widows' houses and for a pretense, making long prayers. In other words, this is everything they're doing. And then they would use prayer as a cover-up. The word pretense, that word in the Greek, it's a very profound word. It means to put something forward for appearances to conceal what's really going on behind it. So they love, they love greetings. They love the best seats. They love the best parties. They love the long robes. They love the fancy, expensive clothing. They love going out in public. They're, they're, they're living off of the broken backs of poor widows. And then they pray long-winded prayers as a cover-up. 
You know that praying when you're not really talking to God, you're actually talking to the people that are there to listen. And see, here's the thing. When we read this, we might be tempted to think, only apply it out there, only apply it out there. When the reality is, remember, Jesus is talking to disciples. He's saying, yes, it's a temptation out there and it's a temptation for religious leaders, but make sure that you're always looking in the mirror. Is my heart pure? It is amazing in the gospel of Luke how often Luke focuses on the heart. That's what, that's what Jesus cares about most. The condition of my heart. Are my affections true? Am I integrated? Does my outward appearance closely resemble what's going on in my heart? Especially, especially when it comes to the activities of religion. And it matters to Jesus because of how dangerous it can be, how harmful it can be to people. So important. So what does Jesus do? He reveals, yes. He warns, yes. And then finally, Jesus laments. Now, I'm gonna read this next couple verses. Look at verse 21, one through four. But as I read it, remember, what is ringing in your ears? What's ringing in your ears is the, rigid, the religious leadership preying on widows. That's what's ringing in your ears. And here's what happens next. Chapter 21, verse one. Jesus looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. These would have been Jewish coins. So I'm gonna keep reading in just a minute, but let me, let me tell you what's happening. The reason that Jesus can see what's happening with this giving is because the religious leadership in Jerusalem at that time had moved the giving, which is supposed to happen in private, they had moved it out into one of the largest courtyards in the temple so that the giving became a public spectacle. It was taken from private to public. And in this, in this massive courtyard, there were treasuries. You see that word in verse one? They were putting their gifts into the offering box. That's the word treasury. There were 13 of them. They were they were large receptacles with a trumpet-shaped metal bowl so that when you dropped in your coins, it would clank and make all kinds of noise and everyone would go, whoa, that person just put in a fortune. Listen to all of the noise clanking and rolling down the metal trumpet. And each of the 13 receptacles had a Hebrew word over it that told you what the money was going to go towards. And all of it was related to the temple, remodeling the temple, beautifying the temple, helping pay for elements of temple worship. Okay, so you got to picture this. People are now giving, and when they give, everyone knows how much they're giving. And often the wealthy, which was often the Pharisees, would. there's actually a place in Matthew that talks about how the Pharisees would sometimes blow trumpets right before they gave. Can you believe this? And then they would walk in and dump their coins into this massive receptacle. This is what's happening. And Jesus looks up right after he's talked about religious leaders preying on widows. 
And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, she put in all she had to live on. Okay, there's two ways to interpret this story. And some of you are going, wait a minute, what's happening here? What is, why is this here? There's two ways to interpret it, and there's kind of a debate in scholarship. The first way to interpret this story is that Jesus pauses randomly out of nowhere to give a lesson about the heart of true giving. And that that lesson is about, look at this widow. She's the model giver. She gives sacrificially. In fact, she gives so sacrificially, she gives every single thing she has to live on. That's one way to interpret it. The second way to interpret this passage is that Jesus is lamenting. He's actually lamenting a corrupt religious system that's, that would cause a poor widow to try to compete with the rich by putting in a second coin to make a little bit more noise, knowing that that second coin was everything she had to live on. And that Jesus is actually brokenhearted and he might even be angry as he watches a system that would make a widow feel pressured to give more than she could or should to the point where it puts her very life in danger. And as you can tell, I'm leaning towards the second interpretation. Did you get that? <laughs> I'm leaning towards the second one and, and here's why. And I've debated and I've studied this a lot and there's lots of debate. I mean, there's a couple things about the first interpretation that are problematic, but it is common and many of us have heard it taught this way, right? First of all, even commentators who think that Jesus is lifting her up as a model, the problem is no one can quite agree what the lesson is. So some of the options are, some options are, here's one option. The measure of a gift is not how much you give, but how much you have left over. That's what makes the gift great. And because she had nothing left over, she's the model giver. That's one option. But there's other options. The measure of a gift is the amount of self-denial. It's how much it costs you. And for the widow, it costs her everything. So she's the model giver, Right? And then some, some people say, surely her attitude must have been better, you know, because she was willing to sacrifice. She was willing to trust God with everything. Surely her heart was in the right place. But here's the problem. And you have to really read carefully. If you were to go back and read that story meticulously, one of the first things you would notice is Jesus never says any of those things. All of those interpretations are imposed onto the text, Okay. They're brought to the text. Jesus doesn't draw this out. And not only that, there isn't a single place in the New Testament that says people should give to the point where they literally have nothing else to live on. Especially the New Testament never says that about vulnerable people, people who are widows, people who are poor. Not only that, look at the context. Jesus goes from rebuking the leadership, 
Now look at the very next verse in your Bible. Look at verse 21, verse five. You know what's gonna happen next? Some people are gonna come to Jesus and say, look at how beautiful our temple is. And Jesus, what does he say? He says, this thing is gonna burn. And it did burn 70 years, 70 AD. It got brought to the ground. So we go from judgment to judgment. And I think, it, now, is, is it possible that Jesus is admiring the widow for her heart and giving? It could be, but I think it's far more likely that Jesus is angry and brokenhearted. Why would religion become something that pressures people to give when the, when the purpose of the church, the purpose of the religious community is to care for widows, care for the poor? So interesting. So interesting. I shudder to think sometimes the judgment of God that will come on prosperity gospel preachers, the TV preachers who get on TV and they, and they prey on people and they, and they say, give, give now. I don't even know who you are. Give. I've got a number in my head, $273. You know, give it, give it as a seed. I promise you, God will give you a return on your investment. And these, and there's story after story after story of people who give everything that they have to live on and they're left devastated. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6? He said, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. So when you give to the needy, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues that they may be praised. Truly I say to you, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And you know what that tells me? It tells me in the church, in the community of Jesus. Giving, giving is an act of worship. It's an act of worship that you do. It's, it's personal. It's, it's something you do because you, of your gratitude to Christ for what he's done in your life. It's never supposed to be paraded around. Now we have these boxes, okay? We have these giving boxes and so, but don't go over there and start dropping a bunch of coins in there and make as much, shake the thing, okay? That's not what it is. That's not what it is. I heard a story of a, I heard a story of a pastor who met with a man in the church who wasn't happy with what the pastor was talking about on Sundays. And the man said to the pastor, I wonder if you know how much I give to this church, <laughs> right? And the pastor said, I actually don't know. And I don't know how much you give. And here's what the pastor said. I can guarantee you it's not enough to keep me from talking about Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> giving is a private thing. Giving is something. And I want to say that I, I could not be more blessed by the generosity of River West Church. I mean, it's astounding. Thank you. Please continue to give. And you know why? Because when, when you give, you know what we're primarily doing? We're using those resources to represent Jesus in this world, to care for people who are needy. The number of ministries that we get to support that are caring for widows and orphans and, and foster care and refugees who find themselves without resources here. This is the heart of Jesus. This is the heart of Jesus. 
So Jesus cares about this. But let me, let me tell you something as I wrap up. The reason Jesus cares, the reason Jesus ratchets up the intensity, and unfortunately, when you come back after Easter Sunday, it's not gonna be less intense, okay? But the reason is because Jesus loves people. He loves you. And nothing breaks the heart of Christ more than when religion distorts and keeps people from God. And I want to pray about that right now. I'm going to have you bow your heads as the worship team comes. And we'll take a moment to pause. Heavenly Father, as we reflect on these scenes where we see the heart of Christ, it's so helpful. It's so important to be reminded of your heart, God. You want to know us, and you want, you want us to know you. And we come to know you through the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Not just a great teacher. Yes, certainly a great teacher, but not just a great teacher. Not just a rabbi. Not just the leader of a religious movement. But the very Lord of the universe who in this moment is seated at the right hand of the Father. We see you there, Jesus, and we, we want to surrender our lives to you in this moment. And so as I pray, will you just reflect on your heart in this moment, the, the song we're about to sing it with your eyes closed. This moment is designed for you now. Where are you at with Christ today? Is he just part of your week, a Sunday morning activity? Or have you surrendered to Jesus Christ as your Lord, your Savior? Can I make you a promise? The very moment right after that decision will be one of the greatest moments of your life. The freedom and the joy and the hope and the forgiveness that you will experience as you turn over control and put your faith in Christ and in Christ alone. It's a simple prayer that I'll invite you to pray this morning as we sing. Where you say, Father, I believe. I believe everything I'm hearing about Jesus. I believe everything about the song I'm singing about your love, how deep the Father's love for me through Christ. I believe it all. Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to serve you. We say that prayer this morning. Lord, we love you. We're so thankful to be your daughters and your sons. We're so thankful to be in this place. We pray these things together in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. Can I invite you to stand and we'll sing?